regardless of background, regardless of age, regard like if you want to cheat code to what we as a species, what human beings care about most, we want to be happy and we want to feel love. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Never Too Late with Blake podcast, where you guys, the listeners, will join me on a journey with my guests. My aim with this podcast is to provide practical and useful information and tips to help you all on your self-improvement journey. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Never Too Late podcast, everyone. I hope you enjoyed my recent solo episode talking about self-awareness, breast and recovery, identity, and some of the common themes that have been popping up from recent guests. I appreciate all the feedback I've got from them and sounds like it could be something that I might implement a little bit more often in between episodes. In today's episode, I had the privilege of chatting to Declan Edwards, who's a happiness expert and researcher and founder of the BU Happiness College. I'm really excited to share this chat with you today and hope you can all resonate with some of the topics and look to implement some of the tools into your lives. We discussed so many things in this chat, some of which are the myths around happiness, the I'll be happy when mindset, how nutrition and exercise play a role in happiness, three tips to improve your happiness, is happiness the ultimate form of success, and can money buy happiness. There is so much great knowledge and wisdom shared in this chat from Declan, and I'm very grateful for his time. And with that, let's get straight to the episode. Declan Edwards, welcome to the Never Too Late podcast, and thanks so much for coming on. Mate, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Should be a good chat. You're a happiness expert and researcher while being founder and CEO of the BU Happiness College. What sparked your passion for happiness? Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of people make the mistake when they meet me or they look into you know the college and what we do there. They make the mistake of thinking, man, this guy must have always been happy. <laughs> this guy just loves happiness because he's a naturally happy person. And that's so far from the truth. You know, I, I spent a lot of my life uh, really struggling, to be honest, with, with a few mental health challenges, as well as with just a really, I guess, a sense of a lack of clarity. Now, what I mean by that is like, I didn't really know who I was. I was too busy trying to be who I thought everyone else wanted me to be. You know, sometimes I look back on my past and I go, I was a human chameleon. Like <laughs> I play the role that people wanted me to be in. But I lost sight of who I was for myself. So, of course, self-esteem issues were a struggle there. And I also had no clarity around, well, what does a happy and meaningful life look like to me? You know, so I tried to chase happiness by pursuing my dad's definition of a happy life, which was, you know, go to the military is, is the career path, which I thankfully didn't end up doing. Um, I tried to chase it through society's, you know, checkbox for a happy life, you know, go to uni, get good grades, get the job, get the partner, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I think I realized I could chase and achieve all these things. But if I was achieving them and still feeling empty or not feeling fulfilled, there was a saying shared with me once that uh, success without fulfillment is the greatest failure. And mm. so that's where my passion for happiness came from. I was like, man, I'm chasing success at the sacrifice of happiness and fulfillment. And that led me to then go, well, I want to understand what it means to be happy. Hence going and studying positive psychology and, and then opening a happiness college. Wow. I think so many people... That I have that sense of feeling of like you're chasing all these things, as you said, university, work, the house, all of that. And then you get to a point and it's like, oh gosh, like, 
am I really chasing this for the right reasons and where does happiness fit in this? What sort of age were you when that sort of happened for you? Was it in your 20s or a little bit older? Or Actually, surprisingly a little bit younger, which was very great. So I actually started working with my first ever mentor slash coach somewhat unofficially um, at 19 years old. Uh, so I'd come out of high school and I was like, okay, I'm going to go to uni because everyone's saying go to uni. I have no idea what I want to do there. So I did journalism for the first year. I would also, I'd also been struggling quite a bit with um, body dysmorphia and some issues with my body image and self-esteem and got stuck on that pattern of, you know, I'll be happy when I lose weight or when I look a certain way and, and got there and reached those things and wasn't happy yet. And so I reached out to a man by the name of Sebastian Terry, uh, who runs a project called 100 Things. And he was the first role model I'd ever had of someone kind of asking big questions of like, what does a happy life mean to me? What does it look like to live a fulfilling life? How do I be of service and contribute to other people's happiness? And he kind of ended up like a quasi sort of like big brother-esque sort of role in my life slash mentor and coach. And I'm very, very thankful to be good friends with him to this day. And he just started asking me those questions. He's like, you know, what matters to you? What do you want out of life? You know, what's happiness look like? And encouraged me to start writing goals for myself, which I'd never done before. So I started this journey of personal development pretty well smack bang on my 19th birthday. And then um, I'm still on it to this day. All these years later, you know, I'm still learning and working on myself and having sessions and obviously professionally now doing it for, for six and a bit years with running the college um, and helping other people be more intentional with managing their mind and emotions and their happiness. But um, tell you what, it was the best thing that could have happened. I was looking around at 19 being like, man, I'm working on these sort of soft, soft skills or human skills, right? Asking these big questions, working on my own mindset and my own uh, well-being. And I think a lot of people don't start thinking about that till their late 20s, early 30s, when they're like, I went to uni, I got the job, I did all this stuff, and I'm still not happy, right? So uh, my, my opinion, which is biased, is the earlier you can get into this stuff, the better. <laughs> Absolutely. And that was almost one of the reasons I started this podcast was because during COVID, um, I've said this before, but... I sort of started listening to some podcasts and started working on myself and I'm like, wow, I really want to share this with people that I know that, that haven't really been exposed to some of this information. And um, yeah, so it's it's grown into what it is today. But I think, yeah, so many people are not really, or they don't really think about the big questions or no one really asks them the big questions like you were saying about what is your life purpose? And I guess how can someone go about working through those those sort of things to find out what their life purpose may be mm, yeah 100 mean, i think you're right in like how do we even begin that journey i say to people all the time like the start of that journey is learning how to be introspective so learning how to look inwards to understand ourselves it's funny some people come to the college and think i've got this magic recipe or secret sauce <laughs> for what a happy life is for eight billion people and i'm like guys i've been studying happiness for close to a decade now there isn't one. There's not a singular recipe secret that leads to a happy, fulfilling life. But there are skills that are common themes. And one of those skills is learning how to get back in touch with ourselves. You know, we, we live in a time at the moment where our attention is increasingly being drawn externally, right? Like our attention, like for people listening to this, your attention is literally an economy. Like social media platforms pay a lot of money to keep your attention. Netflix pays a lot of money to keep your attention. Um, so I think we're always drawn external to ourselves, and we're looking outside of ourselves for these answers, right? Or maybe just looking outside of ourselves to just avoid how we're feeling internally. Mm. But it's such a good skill 
to learn to start slowing down and spending time with yourself and actually going, how do I feel about my life at the moment? Right. And if there's some gaps there, what do I need to do to address it? And the two best ways to do that, if people are listening to this for like practical tips to start looking introspective, meditate and journal. I don't really care how you do those two things. I get it that sometimes silent seated meditation is very daunting for people, especially if you have a very fast mind. But start with maybe like meditative walking or mindful walking or, you know, maybe go to some yoga classes, like do something that's going to help your brain slow down a little first. And then the second one is get your thoughts and feelings out of your head. Because while we're chasing them in our head, it's very hard to understand them. And so writing them down in a journal or going and seeing a specialist like a, you know, a counselor, therapist, psychologist, coach, whatever it may be to talk these things through. Or there's an app called Otter, which I love. It's free. Uh, you can talk into it. It's like vocal journaling and it'll summarize all your entries and you can go back and look at what's been on your mind lately. Um, so I prefer that because I like to talk my thoughts out rather than write them. Yeah. But if you just start with that. I'm going to take some time each week to check in with myself, to meditate, to slow down and to journal and get my thoughts and feelings off my head. Tell you what, you're, you're 50% of the way there. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's something I've spoken about a lot on the podcast about the impact meditation and journaling has had on me and nice. I've brought it up a few times but never really gone fully into in depth about how it can be so positive and it's good to hear it from your perspective but I guess when people start that process of going introspective it can be quite scary I would think if they haven't done it before so it's a big step but I think once you do make that step then you can really open up to some huge possibilities. Yeah and I'm glad that you highlight that because yeah, if you're listening to this and you're like, whoa, that sounds really confronting, you're right, it's probably going to be challenging. We use the analogy at the college sometime of we all have a spare room in our mind where we stuff shit that we're not ready to look at yet. And so like we that. go through life acquiring stuff that we're like, either I'm too exhausted to handle this right now or I don't know how to handle it right now because I've never learned those skills, right? Or I feel a bit too daunted to do it on my own. Like this is a two-person job. I need some help. And if any of those three boxes aren't ticked, our brain kind of goes, I'll pop it in the spare room, I'll deal with it later, which is all well and good. But for most people, we don't bloody go back and deal with it later. Yeah. And so we're just compiling and building up all of this like emotional weight um, that just sits in our mind and sits on our heart. And, you know, this is where people start to burn out. They feel overwhelmed. They feel emotionally exhausted and drained. They might find themselves having these big emotive reactions and going, I don't get why that impacted me so much. It's like, because you weren't reacting to that thing. You were reacting to all the stuff that's weighing you down in the spare room. In saying that, I don't advise people go into the spare room and immediately try and lift a baby grand piano. Like, <laughs> you're going to hurt yourself. And so I tend to say to people, hey, yes, do your introspection, but just wade in a little bit and just see, like, learn to check in with yourself first. You don't need to do all the unpacking and healing on day one. And if you can, if you are in a position where you can get a professional to help you like guide that process and be in your corner, tell you what, like it's part of the reason why after doing this for so long, I still have coaching sessions. It's just helpful to have someone in your corner backing you, supporting you, keeping you accountable, pointing out your blind spots. And um, if you are in a position to do that, I highly recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I've chatted about before is the fact that this path or this journey that we're all on of self-improvement it never ends there's never an end point it's just a constant improvement journey so it matches up with what you're saying but what are some of the myths about happiness that, that some people get stuck on i guess 
Yes, yeah, it's a good question. I think one of the biggest myths about happiness that people, uh, it comes up so frequently when I tell people what I do for a living, they go, oh, happiness, that's just that fleeting feeling that comes and goes, isn't it? Like, it's not all that important. And look, to a degree, they're right. Like, there is a form of happiness, which we call hedonic happiness, which is more that joy, excitement, elation. It's more linked to the um, neurochemical of dopamine, which a lot of us have probably heard of before. You get dopamine when you have you know, a sugary snack or when you get a like on your social media post, like you get a little rush. Yeah. The downside of chasing that happiness all the time, which I think a lot of people accidentally do because as a society, we tend to categorize happiness just as that form. So we chase that form, right? The downside of it is exactly what people's critiques of it are. It comes and goes real fast. It's, it's got a real big come down effect. So then we want to chase it even more. Um, it's not a real stable foundation to build a happy life off of. But a lot of people don't even know there's other forms of happiness. And and so that's probably one of the biggest myths is that happiness is just that hedonic dopamine-driven happiness. What we want to start looking at when we undertake our journey of living a happier life and working on ourselves to be happier is expanding our understanding of happiness to also go, hang on, what about contentment? Right Now, contentment, which is eudaimonic happiness, is so much more linked to meaning and purpose. Right? It's so much more linked to good connections and good relationships. It's, it's more linked to, I guess, this steady state, this foundation of feeling good in ourselves and in our life. Now, that type of happiness, it takes longer to build, but it stays for longer too. Mm. Right? And, and so it's a lot more powerful in shaping our behavior and shaping how we live. And so the first myth I'd like to bust is like, if you're putting all your Uh, eggs in one basket of pursuing hedonic happiness and that rush and that excitement and dopamine, you know, an achievement, you're going to endlessly be chasing because it comes and goes so fast. What you'd be better off doing is building that strong foundation and platform of contentment, meaning, purpose, quality relationships, right? And then on top of it, you get to top up with the achievement (laughs) and excitement and joy. I still love that stuff, right? But build it on a strong foundation, not on wobbly ones. And then real quickly, the second myth that I think a lot, a lot of people get wrong, and it makes sense why they get wrong, because as a society, we've been teaching it this way for probably over a century now, if not for longer, is the idea that happiness follows success. So mm-hmm. we tend to think when I achieve X, whatever success is by people's definition, right, that the great relationship, the great house, the career, when I travel overseas, when I have X amount of money in the bank, it's when I insert whatever, then I will feel happy. And what close to 30 years of research now in the field of positive psychology has taught us as happiness researchers is that relationship actually isn't true. And I think a lot of people have experienced that on a personal level. They've gone, I'll be happy when whatever it may be, and then they get there and go, oh, shit, I'm not happy yet. Yeah. I don't chase the next goal. What's, so that's interesting is that relationship doesn't work. What's more interesting is the research is starting to show that the relationship is backwards. So we're finding this thing called the happiness advantage now, which is when people are happy, content, fulfilled, they've got a good relationship with themselves, they're living a purposeful life, they actually perform better in various areas of their life, which means they're more likely to have the great job, the great relationship to achieve these external accomplishments. We've had the relationship the complete wrong way around as human beings for hundreds of years. And it's only now that people are going, 
holy shit, happiness is actually the cause of success. It is a contributor to performing well and achieving, not the other way around. It's amazing, isn't it? Because we see so many examples of people that that do get that success and then, oh, or even ourselves, like we get the success and we don't get the happiness, but I feel like we all just keep doing it. So as you said, it's almost, it's building on that stable base over time that then you can top it up with that, um, was it eudonic? Uh, with the, top it up with the hedonic one, yeah. Hedonic, yeah, yeah. That's an accomplishment, you go to town. Yeah, so it's amazing how we still sort of fall into that trap. Um, how can we sort of get out of that and build on the happiness side of things? Yeah, and I think you're right. The reason I think so many people fall into this trap is because it's all they've known, right? No. Like, let's be real. I don't know what it's like for you, but I know for me and for a lot of people I talk to, when we went to school, we weren't having conversations in our education about emotional intelligence, resilience, happiness, meaning, purpose, contribution, right? That wasn't in the curriculum. No. So if you didn't learn it at school and you didn't learn it in your workplace, unless you were one of the lucky, lucky people who had emotionally intelligent parents that were having these conversations at home with you, like, of course we haven't been exposed to it. And so we tend to just follow the same path and then go, oh, shit, this isn't working. We know it hasn't been working for a long time, but if you're not going to do that, what are you going to do? And so I think that's the most powerful thing people can do uh, when they start this journey and, and to free themselves from falling into those happiness traps that catch a lot of people out is start understanding that there are other paths out there, right? Learn about something like this. Most of the stuff that I teach and that we share at the Happiness College, like, hasn't been directly from the research that I do and I undertake personally. I get to stand on the shoulders of giants who've come before me for 20, 30, 40 years, sometimes with, in the cases of like stoicism and what it means to live a meaningful life and hedonic happiness. That was the ancient Greek philosophers like mm. thousands of years ago. There are things out there about what it means to live a happier, more fulfilling life. We just need to get in a space where we can be exposed to them. Like that was the whole point of opening a happiness college, right? I was like, it's crazy to me that there's not a space where people can learn these things and have these conversations and be exposed to these tools. And I remember, geez, I opened the happiness college when I was 23. And I remember wow. just going, what if I made that space? Like what if I, I'm annoyed that that space didn't exist for me? What mm. if there was a place where people could tap into it? And so yeah, look, obviously, yeah, if you're listening to this and you love the college, come to the college. But if not, like get on great podcasts, great books, like, Look up positive psychology TED Talks and just expose yourself to it. Mm. I, on that, do you think that happiness is attainable for everyone? I deeply believe so. I do, I do hope so. I think it's – and the reason I say that is because it is such a core human desire, right? If you ask anyone in the world, regardless of age, background, culture, whatever it may be, what do you want in life? What matters to you? you'll get a million different answers as the first level, right? And yeah. then you go, yeah, but why do you want that? Say they said, oh, I want a good paying job. Why do you want the good paying job? I want to have a house for me and my family. Okay, why do you want the house for you and your family? Right? I want to feel secure and I want to feel safe. Why do you want to feel secure and safe? What's that going to add to your life? So this experiment, it's called the five whys theory. I actually ran this. It's a really cool test. You can ask anyone and by the time you get to the fifth why, it always lands on either happiness or love. That's it. Wow. Regardless of background, regardless of age, regard like if you want to cheat code to what well, we as a species, what human beings care about most, we want to be happy and we want to feel love. Hmm. And 
that's why I answer the question, is it possible for everyone to achieve happiness? I, I really, I have to believe in my heart of hearts that it is because it's such a core human desire. In saying that, I'm very, very aware that conversations about fulfillment, fulfilling our potential, deep happiness, it is a privileged position to be in. Right? I remember we took our first international retreat with some of our members at the college um, a few years ago. We went to Africa for three weeks and did a safari. And I remember trying to explain to our guide, a Masai Mara, a Masai Mara tribesman, um, as I do him, I tried to explain to him what I did for a living. And he said to me, he goes, ah, oh, conversations about, you know, mental health, happiness, well-being, all these things that you do. He's like, what a, what a privileged position to be in. And oh, I was yeah. like, whoa. And he goes, here we're worried about whether we're going to have enough food on the table. Mm. Here we're worried about whether we have shelter over our head. There's, a, there's an old, old thing that's used in every Psychology 101 textbook called Maslow's Hierarchy, which is like we have our base survival needs first, then we have needs around our safety and security, and that's where like income comes in and, and shelter. Then we have needs around connection and like feeling part of something and being, having good relationships. Then we have needs about our relationship with ourself, so self-esteem and, and you know, self-talk. Then we have at the very top of the pyramid fulfillment or self-actualization fulfilling our potential as an individual. It's very hard to do the top levels of building a great relationship with yourself and feeling like you're fulfilling your potential if your safety and security needs aren't met. And unfortunately, that's still the case for a fair chunk of the global population. And so as much as I go, yes, happiness is attainable by everyone, I think we have a long way to go. We're getting a lot better, but we have a long way to go as a species, as a global society, to give people the opportunity to build their happiness because they're not thinking about that while they're worried about food and shelter. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I love how it's all in inside all of us. It's like no matter what you're trying to do, what your goals are, happiness and love are at the core of that. And I think that starting on that self sort of introspection piece can be very important to then start that journey. As I said before, it might be scary, but – but I think once you get through that and, and sort of start opening up, you'll end up being in a happier place and, and you're not, you don't know where it'll take you. Like I'm amazed at what the last sort of three, three years have um, done for me and changed. So it's, it's, it's an amazing process. Yeah, 100%, man. And I'll quickly just jump on something you said there where you're like, hey, look, this could be a scary thing to do. And you know that. You, it sounds like mm. you started that journey, right? Yeah. But I'd, I'd encourage people like the best things in life that we do – do have an element of fear behind them. Mm. We talk at, at the college about this idea of a green light decision, um, which for reference, we were talking about for years before Matthew McConaughey wrote his biography, Green Lights. And it's like, <laughs> right? But um, this idea that if something equally scares and excites you, that's the green light. That's the right move. I think a lot of us wait to feel 100% ready for something and feel no fear and no challenge. But if something doesn't, give you a little bit of fear, a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of, you know, nerves, it's not pushing your comfort zone. So you're not really likely to grow. Mm. And on the flip side, if you're only scared and overwhelmed by it, it's probably too big of a leap. You need to scale it back a little bit or find something more aligned with your values. It might just genuinely not be the right move for you. But when you get that sweet spot where you go, oh, this is actually pretty exciting, but also pretty scary at the same time, Follow it. Like people think I kid when I say this. I've made every major decision of my life for the last 10 years based on that theory. 
and it's yet to fail. Like I started the college at 23 from that theory. I got married and engaged from that theory where I was like, this is very exciting. We've been happily married now for seven years this year. Um, I've traveled because of this theory I've done, I'm doing my master's thesis because of this theory. If you're like, if you want a shortcut to making great decisions, find the moments in life that equally scare and excite you and run at them. I love that. The green light theory. I think that's, that's amazing. It's something I'll definitely try and implement myself. Just wanted to take a quick break and say that if you're enjoying the podcast, please head over to Spotify or Apple podcast or wherever you listen and subscribe, follow and rate the podcast so I can continue to make content that you enjoy and can all stay up to date. Connect with my Instagram page, Never Too Late Podcast, and pass this on to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from listening. Thank you for all your support. I really appreciate it. Now, back to the episode. How does exercise and nutrition play a role in happiness? Because I know that's sort of where I started. I started at the nutrition level and it's sort of morphed into what it is today. But yeah, how do they sort of come into the piece oh man you just gave me a flashback to younger me i i started <laughs> this journey much the same so i after journalism at uni I, I swapped to nutrition and dietetics and i opened a personal training business and i did my diploma of fitness and i was working on people's physical health for about four years before going into positive psychology research and opening a happiness college um and it's it's funny because i did an overcorrect at that time right i went Okay, I've been so focused on people's physical health, but it's not really making a huge difference, you know, long-term from what I can see in their relationship with themselves. It's always the, I need to lose more weight or I need to change this or I need to get bigger muscles. And I did that myself. And so when I first started the college, I was like, we just need to focus on psychology. If people can manage their mind and emotions, they're going to feel happy. I'm very glad to say that in the last four years, I've found the middle ground of going, actually, these things are so closely intertwined, you can't separate them. And not only have I found it, but the whole field of positive psychology has started going, hey, health really matters in how happy we are. In fact, they've recently added it in to their core recommendations of what it means to live a happy life. They've been finding common themes over the last 20, 30 years of research. And originally, health and physical well-being wasn't one of the common themes. It was kept out. In the last five to 10 years, they've gone, hey, no, no, yeah, it's in there. We need to add this. Yeah. And the whole theory is, right, our mind and body can't be separated. They're, they're deeply entwined with each other. We know that things like good quality sleep and rest, like consistent movement and physical activity, are some of the best protective mechanisms we have against chronic stress, depression, anxiety. Like they're profoundly important in our journey. What I will say in that part is, you need to find a way to do it that aligns with your values and aligns with who you are. Again, I think too many people pursue exercise, nutrition, good quality sleep based on someone else's approach that works for them, which is well and good to be inspired by it. But like, if you genuinely don't like going to the gym, then don't bloody go to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> like find something else that you love. My wife's like that. You know, my wife is really, into, she does like dance fitness classes on YouTube yeah. And it's like that lights her up. She goes for hikes. She walks the dogs. Like that's her way of looking after her body and her health and happiness in a way that works for her. Whereas I know for myself and many other people, I spent years trying to do what I thought was the right way to look after my health. And it was at the sacrifice of my own happiness. So in answer to your question, A, super important. Like you can't separate these things and they're really, really important. Um, and we know from the science how protective they are for positive mental health. 
but B, make sure you're doing it in a way that works for you as an individual. Yeah, I really like that. And then can happiness be contagious once we sort of get this, we start our path and start getting happier and, and building on it all? Can it then be contagious to those around you? Oh, man, hugely so. Hugely so. This is why I love it. I think sometimes we, we think that working on our own happiness is a selfish endeavor. You know, people go, oh, I, don't, I can't prioritize myself or practice self-care or make time for myself because I feel guilty about it because I could be doing stuff for other people. But what we know, again, from research and from lived experience of helping hundreds of people around the world work on their happiness more directly, um, directly through the college, like as members and graduates, is that we all spread a ripple effect, whether we're conscious of it or not. Right now, what I mean by that is there's this thing called emotional contagion, and you'll know it. Like when you walk into a room and it's filled with people who are stressed, you're probably going to feel stressed. Yeah, walk into a room filled with people, you know, who are feeling really angry, you're going to probably feel some anger, right? And so we pick up on the feelings of those around us, and that means we're contributing to that emotional pool as well. We're not just receiving it; we're putting into it. Now. If you want to get more specific around how that ripple effect works, when we work on ourselves, when we get clearer on who we are as an individual, when we form a better relationship with ourselves, when we learn to manage our mind and emotions more effectively, I guarantee you, you will start showing up as a better version of yourself more consistently. Like I am a better husband, leader, friend, family member when I'm happy and well compared to when I'm stressed, burnt out or overwhelmed. It's that simple. And so what a beautiful thing it is to contribute to those around me to go, hey, you're going to get the best version of me more often because I'm taking time to look after myself. And that's why this idea of like working on yourself or personal development being a selfish endeavor is just completely incorrect. It's almost the opposite. Exactly. I think it's one of the most beautiful things we can do. It's literally why we called, so the Happiness College is called BU Happiness College because we're like that is the most beautiful and profound gift any of us can give the world mm. show up wholeheartedly authentically and genuinely as the best version of ourselves. What an awesome thing to give. And um, yeah, it's, we talk about this idea of healthy selfishness, the idea of like mm. prioritizing yourself and your well-being, and your happiness and your personal growth, not at the detriment of those around you, but for the service and benefit of those mm. around you. And then it's almost inspiring for everyone else around you to go, Hey, Look at look at the happiness that's like radiating from that person. Like I want to feel like that. So what can I do to to do that myself? Hundred percent. It's funny. We've actually noticed a weird pattern where we've had quite a few um, couples or family members now go through the college together, but it's literally like a one year separation. So one early brave adopter <laughs> in that family or couple or workplace goes, "I'm going to enroll at a happiness college and learn these skills." It's almost like to the day you can track it, 12 months later, other people around them are noticing how much happier and more fulfilled they are. They're noticing the changes behaviorally and they go, I want a piece of that. And so then they covered a role as well. And it's, it's funny, we've started trying to predict it now as a team. We're like, what do you reckon this person's partner's going to jump on? <laughs> when's their kid coming along for the journey with them? Or, you know, when's their mate going to come along and be part of it? And um, again, it's a beautiful thing to be part of together. It's this real contributive ripple effect that, I deeply, deeply believe that even though we're a team of six people based out of Australia, the ripple effect we've been able to create over the last six, seven years, uh, I hope is moving us towards our vision of growing global happiness. Yeah, that's amazing. And you should be so proud of what you guys are doing. It, it sounds 
like something that's really making an impact on a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I think it sort of brings me to something I wanted to bring up was I'm sort of big on through the nutrition stuff, getting to the root cause or sort of finding out why something happened and then trying to be one step ahead and, and sort of prevent it. With the mental health crisis in Australia, how can we sort of look at being one step ahead of that or start to help people before it gets to the point of um, yeah, having to go see a psychologist or a doctor or, or get medicated in that way? Mm. Yeah, this is, this is a topic I'm deeply passionate about. I'm glad you brought it up. So I want to start by saying there is a spectrum of mental health and well-being. From, that's, that's for simple terms, that's called from minus 10 to plus 10. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge has been as we've we've gone through an age of mental health awareness building, which I think is very important, right? Like I'm very glad we're having more conversations about mental health. It's out in the open more. It's giving people a space and opportunity to discuss these things and to look at it. My worry is we're getting a little bit stuck as a society just in awareness promotion and we're not looking enough at mental health action, which is what do we need to do, as you said, to prevent it, to give people the best opportunity possible to improve their mental health. And, and so what that, you know, leads with, we're just stuck in a ways. I mean, I'm going to put it out there. I'm a little bit sick of just seeing Are You OK Day campaigns every year, knowing that that's a not-for-profit that keeps a ton of money in, in their funding. I put out a report this year of, like, how much they have in their bank account. And at the same time, so many people are struggling with their mental health. I'm like, we need to do better than just talking about this. We need to do something. Mm, get some action. Yeah, and the other thing we need to look at, so I hope we're entering an era now of mental health action and promotion, not just mental health awareness. The other thing we need to look at is a fair chunk of our approaches to mental health as a society are exclusively focused, or maybe not exclusively, but primarily focused on how do we help people go from minus 10 to neutral, which is healthy. We need that. We need to go, how do we help people go from chronic, you know, severe mental health challenges to being able to get through their day? That's really important. Mm -hmm. However, if that's as far as we're going, I would argue there is so much more to life than just getting through each day. The amount of people we've had come to the college, the amount of people who start looking at positive psychology or look at coaching because they go, hey, I've worked with a psychologist, counselor, therapist for years. And whilst it was really valuable and I'm so glad I did it, I'm just at this point now where I feel like I've got everything I was meant to and I don't know where to go next. And I'm like, okay, well, this the research we do, and this is the whole reason positive psychology as a field was started over in the US in the 90s, um, was we need to look at how do we help people go from zero to plus 10, right? There's a lot more to life than just getting back to zero. And not only is that good for the individual, I think that's good for the whole mental health system because at the moment there are people who would be better off taking more of that approach of coach, like coaching positive psychology, how do I go from zero to plus 10, then they would go in the other route, but they don't know that that's an option. And so we have an overloaded and strained mental health system. Like the wait time to see a psychologist can be up to four to six months in Australia. That's, mm. that's a huge failing of the system. And so in answer to your question, how do we start working on more? I think, A, don't just do awareness-focused things. Start focusing on action right? And, and, and lead by example, like start with yourself, take action on your own happiness and well-being first, and then use that as an example. And that ripple effect we spoke about with others and B start looking at, okay, where am I on that spectrum at the moment? And you'll probably move up and down it. Like I've had some low lows and some high highs, but if I was to go overall in terms of my mental health, my happiness, my well-being, whatever you want to call it, minus 10 to plus 10, where do I sit? 
And is my goal right now to get back to neutral? Is my goal to go to plus 10? You're going to need a different toolkit depending on what your answer is for that. Okay. And could we go into the some of the tools to get up to that plus 10 mark? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah, I love it. So uh, let's do some of the ones that I know are pretty universally applicable. Because again, mm-hmm. like I've got members of the college who get a ton out of one field of research and nothing out of another. And then others who get, you know, tons out of that one and nothing out of the first one. But pretty universally, uh, good uh, skills and tools to practice, gratitude of some description. Now, whether that's like gratitude journaling, savoring, which is noticing things in the moment that you're really proud of and grateful for, whether that's practicing accepting compliments, which I know can be really tough for some people and myself included that like a little bit of awkwardness of like, oh no, don't compliment me. Just be like, okay, thank (laughs) you and move on. But, but whatever form it is where you take notice of the good things in yourself and in your life, we know that is really, really useful for helping you move up that spectrum uh, towards better mental health and better happiness. I think a lot of us uh, have brains that are really well wired to look for what's wrong and what needs to be fixed or to focus on what we don't like. And whilst that's useful, there's more to life than just solving problems. We've also got to look at, hey, this is going really well. We've got to stop and smell the roses. So some form of gratitude practice. If I could snap my fingers and everyone in the world did one thing to improve their mental well-being, that would be it. The other one, as we spoke about earlier, some form of introspective practice. So something that you're like, hey, this is me tuning in, looking after myself. This is me checking in on myself. This is journaling, meditation, whatever it may be. Um, and then the third one is something something else like be of service to others it's funny there's this great saying if you want to be happy help others be happier um i think increasingly we're becoming a little bit too uh insular and isolated like we are currently living through a weird time in human history where we're the most connected we've ever been thanks to social media and the internet technology but more people are reporting feeling lonely than ever before Mm. and again so we are the most connected we've been as a society but more people are feeling loneliness. Like that's that shouldn't coexist. That's really weird. Um, and I think it is because we're lacking this deep connections, right? We know the longest running study ever on happiness and health and longevity, so what it means to live a long and healthy life, found that the biggest contributor to how you're going to feel later in life is the depth and quality of your closest relationships. So if I was to go, hey, here's three tools that are universally applicable to every single person who listens to this, Practice gratitude, train your brain to find the good in yourself and the good in the world and to savor and appreciate those moments. Practice looking after yourself. So check in with yourself, do those introspective activities, build a really rigorous self-care plan that works for you. Yes, physical self-help, self-care as well as mental and emotional and be of service to others. Like do something good for the people around you, volunteer if you can be part of a purpose that you feel is really meaningful. I'm really glad to get that out of what we do like with my work. I feel very much of service to others. Mm. That would be the three. Like Those are the three that every single person can do something with to move them up that spectrum. I really like that. I think those three tips are, are great. And I like how the third one was be of service to others after you've almost done steps one and two to work on yourself and, and build those things. Then you're in a good position to then be of service to others. Yes, sir. Yeah. I guess a big question that a lot of people would sort of debate is does money buy happiness? We sort of touched on it a little bit earlier, but can you go into that and, and if that is the case or not? 
Yes, sir. And I might give a little shout out here too. If this question does interest you, I did a whole podcast episode on it on My Millennial Money with Glenn James, which is actually how we connected. But yeah, yeah, we went for like an hour on this one. As a short summary of it, money buys happiness up to a point and then it stops. So I used to be strongly in the camp, money doesn't buy happiness, it's not important, it's irrelevant, uh, and realized over time how privileged of a position to be in that was. We spoke earlier in our chat about that Maslow's hierarchy and the fact that, hey, you know, we do need to look at survival needs first. In Australia, the found roughly, and look, the figures change based on what report you're looking at and what year, but on average, it's like 70 to 75 grand a year full-time income for an individual is about the point where making more money than that's not necessarily going to make you any happier. Right? Just have some. By that point, realistically, you're looking after your survival needs. You're probably pretty comfortable. You're probably taking a holiday or doing some stuff that feels good to you. So much more than that, especially if you start going, well, now I'm going to start pursuing higher stress, higher pressure jobs that I don't actually like, but mm. I have a bigger paycheck. It's like, well, you're actually going to tank your happiness to make more money, which isn't going to improve your happiness any further. Right? <laughs> so you lose it on all fronts with that decision. Um, so in Australia, about that 75, I think for a household, it's about 110, 120 between two people. Um, okay. Most recent. Um, when you get to that level, or if you are earning that and going, well, hang on, I'm earning that and I don't feel happy. So what's the go? Because <laughs> I've reached the tipping point. We know from the research that this, I call it the happiness vending machine. You can put money in and get happiness out. Um, but there's only three items in the vending machine. So there's only three things that have found in the research that do lead to that past the baseline income of like, Hey, I'm making enough money to cover my needs. Um, the first is any form of self-development and growth. So building skills, learning, personal development, anything that you're like, I'm working myself on becoming a better version of me. We know that that investment financially pays off in long-term happiness. Um, we know that uh, anything to do with memories and experiences. So rather than buying stuff and accumulating things, which I think a lot of us, a lot of people do accidentally, right? they get the fancy car with the big loan on it. And it's like, you'd be better off putting that money towards memories and experiences you'll cherish for the rest of your lifetime. For some people that's seeing like their favorite band, you know, as a live show. For some people it's travel overseas. Uh, for some people it's, you know, a hobby that really matters to them. Whatever it is for you, go, what gives me good memories and experiences? Invest into that. It's worth putting your money there. And then the third, similar to what I was talking about before people, is altruism. So giving back to others. The found that people who donate, you know, a portion of what they make are actually happier over the long term. We set up the college as a social enterprise. So a percentage of everything we make at the college goes to the United Nations Global Goals um, and works towards everything from fighting poverty and hunger to giving people access to clean water to helping people access school and education in remote countries and communities. Um, Because we realize like, hey, the stuff we're doing at the top of that Maslow's hierarchy is important, but we've got to elevate more people, you know, out of those, those survival needs situations and poverty to get there. So those are the three. Like, in terms of best money by happiness, yes, but only up to a point. Past that, you've got to start looking at invest money into yourself and your own growth, invest money into memories and experiences, and invest money into being of service to others and, and giving back. I really like that. And I guess with some of those investments, whether you're investing in yourself or, in, I guess, the experiences, it's not necessarily getting a – you don't know what the return might be, but often it's the return's bigger than, than what, you, what you'll think. So, 
Um, yeah, that's it's a good way to look at that question. Does money buy happiness? And I think it's hopefully clarified it um, a little bit for the listeners. One thing you also touched on was burnout a little bit. And it's a common thing that happens with a lot of people. And even recently for me, it sort of happened at the end of our, our season with a lot of tournaments and not performing the way I would have liked. It was, it was a burnout. And then a lot of people can get that feeling of burnout and, and don't really maybe know how to deal with it. What tools can we sort of use to to get out of that burnout state and back onto a yeah like a level where we can then proceed to build on our happiness? Mm, mm, yeah, there's a beautiful quote. I actually just ran a masterclass on burnout um, recently in Newcastle, and we're doing it doing it online uh, the day after we're recording this. So if you're listening, you've probably missed okay. it. But uh, <laughs> we'll some resources too or something. Um, but there's a quote that I share in it. I think it's by Michael Gunga that says burnout is what happens when we try to avoid being human for too long. Mm. Right. And so for a lot of people wow. reach burnout because again, all that stuff we spoke about earlier, they've lost connection with themselves. They're not checking in with themselves or practicing self care. They're only focused on external. Right. Um, and so they're, they're really losing that, that sense of like being a human being, right. Rather than being a human doing, which is only focused on output and performance. We, we teach at the masterclass the, the ABCs of burnout prevention. So first is awareness. That means emotional awareness and self-awareness. So that comes back to what we spoke about earlier. If you are not able to look inwards, you're not going to see the warning signs of burnout until it's way too bloody late, right? You're going to be getting punched by burnout before you're even aware it's in the ring with you, right? So we need to practice awareness. B is boundaries. We've got to get really bloody good at knowing our boundaries and communicating them and upholding them well um, in a respectful way. Um, C is compassion towards ourselves and to others, which is giving ourselves the grace and understanding of knowing we're a human being. We're probably going to um, step up sometimes. We're going to drop the ball. We're going to make mistakes. We're not going to nail everything we set out to. We're not going to achieve every goal that we set for ourselves. That's okay. That's part of the journey. But I think a lot of us lose sight of that. Uh, and then S for the ABCs is, is self-care. So we've got to do stuff that fills our cup back up. Um, again, so often we're pouring from this cup into other things and into others and to these external pursuits and we get to the end of the week and go bloody hell i don't remember the last time i like filled my cup up and looked after me of course i'm exhausted mm. I'm tired right so those four kind of need to all happen together right so awareness boundaries compassion self-care if you can master those four skills your likelihood of getting blindsided by burnout and reaching late stage burnout which is what a lot of people talk about when they talk about burnout you're going to really reduce the likelihood of ending up there. You will still feel some degree of burnout in your journey in your life. It's part of being a human being, but you'll be much better at catching it early and addressing it before it becomes a crisis point. Before it becomes too late. Yeah, it's funny with that compassion piece. I think we can get so, we can put so much pressure on ourselves to sort of, like, yeah, it's almost like this achievement pressure or like chasing these things. And sometimes you just need to, step back and just simplify things and just go you know what whether it's like i need an afternoon off or a couple of days or a couple of weeks whatever it might be i think we all know sometimes deep down in ourselves what we actually need Mm -hmm. but then sometimes we oh no we don't actually need that we need to keep going keep pressing on keep doing this so yeah that compassion piece is really important yeah i'm glad that resonated with you man i think it's yeah it's one i see a lot uh, with people who are traditionally high achievers and like myself included, that was what I had to work on a lot. I was very good at achieving things, but not good at giving myself a bit of compassion um, or practicing gratitude for what I had already accomplished. You know, I was always looking at the next goal rather than going, well, hang on, I've actually come pretty damn far. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a big thing for well, I know for me, but but a lot of people is like you're always you're setting goals for what's coming up, what I want to do, but actually you don't ever look at how far you've come and the progress you've made. And we all get stuck in that, I think. If there was I guess we've covered a lot of things today, burnout, um, the root cause of the mental health crisis, um, happiness mindset, does money buy happiness, nutrition, exercise. There have been a lot of things that that cover the happiness piece and how we can all work on it. Mm. Obviously, it starts with, as you said, self going introspectively and a bit more from yourself to then um, build on that and help others. If there was one thing that you would want to leave the listeners with, I know there's a lot we've sort of chatted about, but if there was one little thing that you wanted to leave the listeners with on the topic of happiness, what would that be? Your happiness matters. Like, mm. take it seriously. I think a lot of people brush it off as a bit of a fluffy concept, but all of this stuff that we shared throughout this podcast, this, the idea of happiness spreading a ripple effect and being contagious, the idea of leading by example so we can elevate you know, a whole global community to a place where they can work on their happiness. The idea of happiness being a universal goal of human beings, all of this stuff we're talking about, the idea of the happiness advantage, performing more effectively because you're happy. The the root message of all of that is your happiness matters. So act like it. Declan Edwards, thank you for coming on the Never Too Late podcast. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was fantastic. Just a reminder that this podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice and opinions of guests are their own. If you have any questions regarding your health, be sure to seek professional medical advice.